All right. So in Life in the Law today, we're going to be talking about code switching in the legal and professional sector. Yes. What is code switching? We wanted to open up a space just to meaningfully discuss the appropriateness of cultural modulation, not only in scholarly settings, but also in professional settings. This talk is relevant and necessary, especially when political discourse often neglects interprofessional color line dialogue, as well as authentic discussions about black authenticity and what it means to allegedly diverge from the black experience. So what is code switching, Cam? So when I think of code switching, I like to think about some of the first instances of doing that as a child. And they often involved primary and secondary school and interacting with black American folks. So for me personally, my mom is African. She's from Liberia. And so a lot of the things that we did at home were unique to African culture. We spoke, there were different languages being spoken. We ate African food and Africanized versions of soul food and black American food. And so in interacting with black folks, I recognized pretty quickly that there were things that I was used to that they weren't used to and vice versa. Now, that also took a head when I entered into college at UT Austin, where it was a predominantly white institution. And so very clearly, things that were black and also things that were African were not understood to white folks in that community and vice versa. So I had to really think carefully about the way that I spoke to people, the way that I dressed in certain settings, all with the goal of making sure that I felt kind of, I guess, legitimized in those spaces. Now I don't think that, but at the moment, I did feel a lot of pressure to do and act differently. That's totally understandable. I think that that's a common theme heard when discussing Blacks, in particularly in the professional setting. For me, I don't know. I, I don't know if I buy the idea of code switching just generally. I don't... Mm-hmm. I And it's not to say that I don't see that there is a mechanism that is implored when people shift from being around their friends and being in a professional setting, but also thinking of it through a racial context, I'm very hesitant to assign traits, especially behavioral traits, to certain racial groups. And I think that that just leads to an oppressive othering. And it's I don't appreciate it. So, for example, when you're telling your story about your first instance of code switching, you talked about how you didn't feel, quote unquote, black enough. But to me, I think that that it tends to veer into a conversation that is actually needed when we think about what is black enough and what are these cultural modifiers. And I don't agree with them because nine times out of 10, these modifiers are impressioned upon us by the dominant, which is more so probably the white community, and they're negative. So we're negatively aligning entire communities with stereotypes that are damaging to their image. And then we're saying, okay, well, when you come over here, you have to act a different way as though the community is not so complex as they are not already acting certain ways. I mean, I totally, I can understand that. I don't think, I think that's a critique of code switching as a, as a whether it's good or bad, which I'm, I'm totally open to, but I still think it's a thing, right? Like we well, it's can't... Not, no, it's not saying whether it's good or bad. It's just, mm. it's uh, really getting into the ideology behind code switching to say that, okay, you, when you're black, you're going to modulate when entering into a professional space as though that's not already what the way that you act or how what you relate to. 
or e- even if we're talking about social spaces. So, for example, we talk about like playing golf and you or drinking wine. There's things that are normally I think that we could even bring this into an intersection of um, class conversation. Things that are normally attributed to white people. When you're black, you're seen as almost an anomaly when you you enter those spaces or you do those things. But I don't think that that's right because black is so complex. It's so unique. It's so diversified. It's so it's so everything mm-hmm. that for us to say, okay, this is not normally a black trait, I think would be limiting not only our social mobility, but just limiting the ways that we see ourselves. I, I can agree with that. Like, I, I get the point that there is a wide swath of things that are commonly linked to whiteness, right? Primarily because of the issue of privilege, right? It's a thing of whether or not you have access to these things because, for example, with golf, there were not many black golf courses, right? Like, that was exactly. a thing. It was specifically and systematically uh, removed from black communities and, and prevented folks from getting into golf, right? Um, but I, I think of it more in terms of specific pressures that we experience, whether you know, you're know you a woman, whether you're black, et cetera, that you feel you have to address in order to have the social, political, career mobility that you're looking for. So one example I think about is black hair, right? So mm-hmm. you've seen Good Hair, right? Yeah, uh, by Chris Rock. Yeah. Chris Rock documentary. Exactly. Black hair is one thing in particular that has a lot of really strong political and professional implications, such that for a lot of people, especially black women, who have more textured, 4C, 4-type hair generally, people feel the pressure to, for example, straighten their hair, right? People have the pressure, for example, not to wear dreads because they have heard and it has been shown that some employers will say that is, quote-unquote, unprofessional, that is, quote-unquote, unkempt, right? All of these are, are dog whistle terms for what people used to call nappy hair, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? So so I think when it comes to those types of things, it actually requires us in order to be successful sometimes to do those things. We mm-hmm. sometimes do have to straighten our hair. We do sometimes have to change the way that we talk in order to make ourselves seem more legible, make ourselves seem more presentable to certain people. And, and, and that isn't only unique to black and white folks, because, I mean, even in black communities and respectability issues, we still have to do with those things. When people say, pull up your pants, right, don't sag, mm-hmm. those are things that are related to cultural ideas in terms of how you know black communities dress and how they present themselves. But then also that connects with what mainstream, aka white, society sees as meaningful and realistic and legitimate. So to that point, the conversation kind of brings about a double-edged sword. So the first issue is that, of course, whiteness is always attached to things that are superior. And this is evidenced even in literature and celebrated literature like Patrick Buchanan's The Suicide of a Superpower, Mm. where he talks about how America is shifting so far away from its normal ideals. He talks about how Christianity is no longer the root. He's really like making some implicit connection of Christianity to whiteness. And in that turn, he's inferring that whiteness is superior. And he just goes further and further. And that's what happens. And that's what they think when they think of drifting away from the 
what is normally associated with the collective white identity. So that's the first issue. And also, we need to address the the black side of it, because at this point, the conversation is becoming uh, almost a performative discourse, right. whereas we're kind of subjectifying these identity traits or class traits and whatnot, and we're bringing it all together and talking about what is and what is not right in the black community, but also what are the indicators that are used to perform in the community at large that are also problematic. I definitely think that there's a performative aspect to it, and I think it's unique in law school because law schools are at the intersection of professional and academic settings. Mm -hmm. We study law, but we also practice law, and so oftentimes we have, for example, job fairs at the law school. Firms will literally come to campus, and folks will interview on campus for jobs across the country and across the globe. Yeah, for recruiting. So, So I think that, especially in professional settings, people feel that they have to change the way that they interact interact with folks in order to be seen as more legitimate, in order to secure that job. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I'm saying it's important for us to recognize that and for us to think really critically about how we navigate these spaces for our own survival and for our own success. Because if someone has any inclination that they can't wear their normal and natural hair to an interview because that'll make them less likely to get a job, that is really problematic and a sad realization of the world that we live in. Mm-hmm. Even even more so if it's in an academic setting. If we want to talk about a racial justice issue and you have a professor that either doesn't understand or doesn't give credit to the, to the theme or the ideas that you're bringing to the table, then that often requires you to think and code switch in what you write about and what you care about, ultimately. Exactly. And we talked about that in a couple of earlier episodes when we talked about how it's so hard to be objective in the law when you have to contextualize these things in order to determine whether or not there actually was guilt or innocence in certain situations. Because if you looked at the context, it can be completely racialized. But these kind of central themes of non-racial or colorblindness or post-racialness are at this point celebrated to the point where where we're taking away from the conversation and we're not necessarily responding to stigmatisms and archetypes that are implemented upon black communities. So I, I don't I don't know that I see a solution because, again, my issue is with the fact that the normal traits that are assigned to, quote unquote, whiteness and whatnot are not assigned to blackness. And I, I'm not understanding why. But then again, an author, Tori, says that we can be post-black, which is post-collective identity, without being post-racial and without taking race from things that need race in order to critically assess and then move forward, I think, as a country. I think, for example, of How to Get Away with Murder and Viola Davis's amazing performance, and I think maybe the first or the second season, where there's an entire scene of her taking down the facade, right? She's a lawyer. She is in the courtroom, in the classroom often. And there's a moment where she's sitting at her vanity. She's taking away the makeup. She's taking off the eyelashes. She's pulling off the wig. And Mm -hmm. you see her... I remember that episode. And so I thought that was really important and really unique. And critics in entertainment thought that that was also really beneficial for black representation because when we code switch so often and it becomes so ingrained in our average everyday performance, we don't get to set the example for other folks who are coming in our footsteps, the folks that are going to be looking to us to validate their endeavors in the future. So when we do see folks who are able to enter into these spaces and they don't have to speak 
you know, in, in a particularly mainstream or, or acceptable, quote unquote, way, if they're able to go and be a lawyer and have, you know, and speak in slang in front mm-hmm. of a judge mm-hmm. or wear their hair naturally and not have to deal with the idea of a dread being a problem. To you know? only be ascribed to black people. Like, why is it? Why are we the ones who only speak the one? They speak the slang. Like, that's my issue. I don't understand. Your issue is the fact that these places, these spaces don't make room for any normal traits that are ethnically derived. Mm-hmm. And I completely understand that. That's so problematic. But then again, my issue, and I think, I think that maybe that's the thing. And so we're critiquing two different things. Is my issue is with who's prescribing these, these traits and why. Because I think that it's all oppressive and mm. that they need to be deconstructed at the root. And then we can start a conversation, an honest conversation about cultural modulation, which would make people uncomfortable. For sure. For sure. I think the reason we're not able to get to that conversation is because of the dominant narrative and who establishes them. So if we want to answer the question, who is creating these kind of markers of what is blackness, what isn't blackness, what is whiteness, and therefore what is code switching out of blackness into whiteness, we have to think about the ways in which culture has systematically erased cultural elements that are really important to us. And that's, and that's a very great point. I'm glad that you made that point. So think, for example, of the many different ways that folks try to assimilate cultures into America. So, Or just assimilate cultures into their own. So, for example, how normal traits that are associated with the black identity are capitalized and exploited by whites. Kylie um, Jenner, lip kit. Yes. Okay. Thank you, Kardashian. Kardashian booty. Yeah, Kardashian. Exactly. Karda- even the when they were wearing the cornrows. Even that one time, Car- Kylie got dreads. And everyone was like, oh, you know, this is so... What are they calling them? Probably like, twisties or something. They're cornrows, what are they saying? Braids or something. I don't know what they were saying, but... I but see, black like, folks, but black folks are protective of that. They say this is a black hairstyle. Exactly. So do you this, think that's a black, black hairstyle or do you think that that is accessible to all folks? When I talk about traits that I don't think should be ascribed to certain communities, I'm talking about more so behavioral and social traits. But I didn't disagree that certain things like hairstyles, because, it, you know, there's, they're ethnic for sure. Mm-hmm. And like um, in the natural hair issue, I think that you should be able to wear it into your workplace. And I think a conversation about that when we diverge from talking about behavioral to talking about phenotypical traits, which are accepted as maybe racially salient or not in the workplace, which is a, a entirely probably new conversation about problematic stuff right. <laughs> in the workplace. I think it definitely diverges, but definitely we can associate certain hairstyles with blackness without associating blackness in general with stigmatizing prototypes. I think that's the problem is that we're labeling these actions as stigma instead of looking at the, at the stigma itself. We're talking about stigma as if that is the intrinsic value and then we just put black actions into that bucket as opposed to black actions and, and cultural mannerisms being things that have the label of stigmatized tacked onto them by white communities and by white society. So it's like, we're doing our own thing. We're not worried about the way that folks interact with us up until consequences come for our own actions for being ourselves. So when folks say, 
when, when someone's walking around with their natural hair and living their best life and then an employee says, actually, no, we don't want you to do that, go straighten that hair, yeah. that's when the label of stigma I mean, But I completely understand what you said, and, and I completely agree with the intrinsic value of placing stigmatization on certain, certain aspects of the black community. And I agree with that, but I, then again, you went back and you started talking about, like, again, something that's completely phenotypically derived, like hair, skin color, mm-hmm. whatever. And I think that the conversation differentiates at that point because I don't care. You know, they can say whatever they want to say about these things. This is what we're born with and stuff like that. But the other things like the socially the socially derived traits that they impression upon us interracially and even we impression upon ourselves intraracially, it's an issue because those are traits that are normally associated with being lesser class. And it's not like, oh, we created them and then they're stigmatizing them. It's like, no, no, they... They have these bad traits like, oh, you know, they're not smart and they're not this and they're not cultured and they don't play the piano and they don't, you know, they don't go to yoga or whatever it is. And I understand that this des- this conversation definitely has a class element to it. But again, these are traits that I think should be associated with the black community because we are advanced and we are powerful and we're cultured and we're complex and we're diverse. And we do enter these spaces. We learn things. We master things. And, and then, you know, it gets taken from us and exploited. <laughs> I think that's definitely a point of agreement that we have is that class and definitely race play unique elements in this where one one idea or one cultural you know, mannerism is labeled as stigmatized when it is performed by a black person. Exactly. Exactly. But then when a white person goes and does it or a person that is, is you know, wealthier, even if they are a black person yeah. and does it, that changes the connotation it of it based on themselves. It completely changes the conversation. Identity. Exactly. <laughs>